Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond Busy. My name is Graham Alcott and on this episode I'm talking to Dr Chris O'Connor, a critical care physician and also the founder and president of Think Research. They're a Canadian company and they're using technology to really innovate and solve some interesting problems in the healthcare industry. So I'm back from North America, I'm back in the shed and a really good couple of weeks. So good week in Toronto and then a good week in New York doing some talks, doing some meetings, doing some press stuff, had a really great time. And also I'm getting much better these days at just leaving a little bit of time open-ended at the end of the trip and not having anything to fly back for with a massive deadline on it so that I can just spend some time there. So I went to the baseball, got really into the Toronto Blue Jays, that was cool. Uh, went to Yankee Stadium, found that I have this terrible affliction for supporting the underdog teams and the rubbish teams. Like I just can't support the, the sort of big winner teams. So I was at Yankee Stadium, sat with a Yankees fan and just immediately started supporting the opposition without even really thinking about it. So something of the Aston Villa in my psyche, for sure. Like I have to just go for like the teams that are going to be rubbish. Also spent some time at Smalls Jazz Club. If you're a jazz fan, even if you're not, probably the best jazz club in the world. It really is just a phenomenal place. And live jazz from seven in the evening or something right through till four in the morning seven nights a week amazing musicians they stream the whole thing live on the internet as well so you don't even have to go you can just watch it smallslive.com i think is the web address but really really uh, fantastic place did the tourist thing went up the empire state building and i think it's just a really interesting uh, thing for me is noticing how much how much more enjoyable those trips are if there isn't a deadline of what to get back to and I can just have an extra couple of days, even just a couple of days, really makes the difference to those trips and, and just uh, the amount of things that you can fit in when you just have like a couple of spare days in New York and the whole city at your disposal. A lot of fun. And great to be back in Brighton. So Brighton in May is festival season. So the, the, the festival is on and then the Fringe Festival is on. So it's kind of like having the Edinburgh Festival but on your doorstep. Uh, unless you live in Edinburgh and then obviously the Edinburgh Festival is on your doorstep but you know what I mean and it's taken me about three years to get into a cycle where I'm actually in the city when the festival's on so really pleased that that feels like it's starting to fall into place and all good and I'm recording this at like 11 at night I still feel kind of jet-lagged um, I shouldn't feel jet-lagged because I got a bed I got upgraded on the way home I, I uh, had a full bed and I probably should have had a lot more sleep than I did, but oh well, it was very nice and the food was great and uh, yeah, nice to have unlimited flowing wine and drinks and food and everything else. Very, very cool. So Chris O'Connor. Chris is just a fascinating mind, as you're going to hear. He, he thinks about productivity and efficiency a lot. Needless to say, we got on really, really well. And he's also a really good example of the fact that I think sometimes... The best ideas are the ones that are really simple, but then actually they take a lot of complexity and complication to actually execute and, and make happen. So that's really what you're going to hear is how Chris thinks in this episode about productivity, efficiency, systems, processes, and sometimes how, you know, th those things that sound really simple and they're going to save you two seconds, they take three or four years to actually build and, and really make work. But then what's going to happen over time is you're going to multiply those time savings and that efficiency and the way these things work so many times over that it's that it becomes just this fantastically powerful thing. So Chris hosted me at his very cool open plan office on Front Street, 
right in the middle of Toronto's business district. And, you know, being a good visitor in another city, it's always good to make sure you're referring to the neighbourhood as locals do. And not necessarily that's always the same as what it's like on a map. So I started by asking Chris how he refers to the neighbourhood in which he's based. Uh, we would call it uh, downtown, uh, potentially financial district. We're just across uh, the street from Union Station. Cool, um, which I know very well from having come in the other night and walked into a blizzard coming out of Union Station, which was, yeah. which was fun. Um, so I'm really happy that you're here to uh, spend this time and have this conversation for Beyond Busy. Um, and you're the founder and do you call yourself CEO or like what's your so I'm the founder business card? I'm the founder and I'm the president of president. Uh, Think Research uh, we have a CEO Sachin Arewal okay um, yes but I'm the founder and president cool and um, you're doing some really cool stuff in the medical field and uh, particularly around using technology so I really want to get into that um, so um, so let's start with just how you got to where you are today and just tell, tell your story of, of why we're sat here in this, this lovely office in the middle of downtown Toronto. Okay, um, I'm a practicing critical care physician uh, and I still practice critical care to this day and I practice at Trillium Health Partners uh, which is a hospital just outside of Toronto in a city called Mississauga and it's a big hospital, has about 850 beds and I practice in a relatively big intensive care unit, it has 31 uh, beds. Um, and I work there 18 weeks a year. And the way that I ended up here is I did, I did my undergraduate uh, combination of biology and political science. Okay. And then, <laughs> exactly, um, uh, a very common mixture of things. And then I, I went to medical school for four years. I practiced as a family doctor for three years after that. So I got to see things on the outpatient side. And then I went back and did another six years of training in internal medicine uh, critical care and respirology. And I went in the year 2000, I went into practice and I got a position at Trillium Health Partners and I was working away at Trillium Health Partners and it's a big active busy place and I was excited to be there. And in 2001, it dawned on for me that I had a problem. And that problem was that for my patients to get orders, to get the treatments they needed, they had to be ordered. For them to be ordered, I had to write them, by, write them down by hand, from memory, by scratch, every single time. And literally, I was getting writer's cramp by the end of the day, writing <laughs> so many of these orders. So a huge amount of work, I was getting tired, and I was worried I would forget something, not write the thing, write thing down. So I had the idea, what if we could have just a simple checklist? So rather than writing the orders, I could just check off the orders that would apply to a patient. Sure. Intuitive idea, seems very straightforward, I thought it would take me 30 minutes one day to build an order set. Turns out it's enormously complicated with all kinds of challenges, and hence we're here. I'm here yeah. today talking about this. So I went to build my first order set, uh, built up an order set project at Trillium at that time. Hospitals back then in Canada, everybody had order sets, but nobody really paid much attention to them or gave them any serious thought. Nobody thought very much about how do we build a better order set or yeah. could order sets actually improve care. And just to be really clear, so define what an order set looks like and what it is so what an order set looks like is a good question it's basically kind of like a word document with a series of medical orders just down the middle of it so the orders you need for the diet orders you might need for activities orders for lab tests order for chest x-ray orders for the medications you need all clearly laid out in a fashion that may, that the 
clinician, physician can check as they order right. something for the patient. And it can be ordered to admit the patient to hospital, say if they had pneumonia or if they had a heart attack, or it can be used while they're in hospital to treat a complication perhaps, or help out with the procedure. So they can yep. really be used throughout the patient's hospital stay. Okay. And then, so uh, just reading up on you a little bit, some of the uh, next stages of that were, were about using technology to start to make that just a more mainstream part of, of life in hospitals. So when we started, when I started out, it was, you know, we're talking 2001, 2005, computerization in hospitals then is still nascent. They're right. overwhelmingly paper-based places. And I started out in pa paper with paper-based order sets. The core idea initially actually wasn't a technical idea. Oh, really? Okay. The core idea, or the two core ideas, one is that we can turn medical knowledge, which everybody here can go look up on Google or in textbooks, that we can turn that knowledge into the form of orders and order sets yeah. so that you can apply it directly to patients. And the other core idea was, and this was the central idea behind the founding of Think Research in 2006, is that we could do it collaboratively. So rather than every hospital in Canada building their own order sets in isolation and building them all from scratch, could we build a collaborative network where we could share and learn from each other and integrate with the other sort of key organizations involved in healthcare, like expert groups and specialty sure. societies. And so it was that collaborative foundation that was the genesis of Think Research. And so as things change in the medical world, as new drugs come along, as different ways of doing things come along, then you can use that best practice and sort of push it out across a much wider network of hospitals rather than just you keep that for yourself, essentially, right? Exactly. And that it can both be top down. So we have a team now of people who examine the medical literature and work with the expert groups, specialty right. societies to build the content. But equally as important is it can be bottom up because everybody on the network can see what everybody else is doing. And so if somebody has a good idea on the network, they can create an order set or a new treatment plan. And then if they approve it for use of their organization, everybody else can see it. So it's really from both directions, not wow. just top down, but also it comes, harvests the innovation that exists in the healthcare system at large. And it's that approach that is radically different um, in terms of our approach and how we do things. Yeah. So in terms of what you do now, so you keep, keep your toe in with your 18 weeks a year as a medical practitioner. And then you're here running Think Research. Just paint a little picture of Think Research as a business, its size, history, just give us a little bit of that. So when I started in 2006, it was me and the laptop computer, <laughs> uh, pretty much, <laughs> uh, driving around Ontario talking to anybody who would uh, listen. And we had our first hospital join in 2006, or another three join in 2007. Uh, by about 2010, we got on up to 80 or 90 hospitals, and it was successful, and hospitals were measuring the impact, it was very positive. And we yeah. could show a reduced length of stay, patients getting more best practices, but once again, it's sort of a recurring theme, we did have a challenge, and at that point in time, we weren't computerized, and we recognized if we really wanted to get to scale and make truly have an impact, they were going to have to build a computerized platform to do this, and at that time, that's when... Um, uh, I started working with Sacha Nagarwal, who's our current CEO, um, to really integrate both the clinical knowledge and collaborative right. platform with the same time with the cloud-based platform, and can we integrate those? And it's really the integration of both the technology cool. and the clinical knowledge together that that's where things uh, really start to take off in terms of their impact. 
And did I read you, you pitched it to BlackBerry like a few years ago? Is that, is that true? So it's true I did pitch to BlackBerry. Um, this is an interesting moment in terms of like those forks in the road that I think we all encounter. Yeah. So at, this, at the time when I was thinking about doing the order, set, order sets and founding Think Research back 2005, 2006, at the same time, I was also interested in wireless mobility and communication. And I had a project where we had given Blackberries, dating the project, but Blackberry was the <laughs> right. cool device, it was pre-iPhone. So I'd given Blackberries to everybody in our ICU, all the nurses, right. pharmacists, doctors. We had Blackberries and we could communicate with a thing called push wireless email. Um, and it was a huge success. People loved it. Uh, we ended up publishing on it. There's an article out there describing the project and how it led to better care. And it was... It was, at the time, we were the first in the world to do it. Uh, nobody else cool. had used it this way. Yeah. So that was actually pretty cool. And I spoke on it. We got some media coverage on it. So I thought this was pretty cool. So I go down to RIM. And actually, I pitched the CEO of RIM at the time, saying it was a really cool project. And, you know, healthcare is a big space. And can't we use this? And at that time, RIM was not interested. Right. So because they were not interested, I didn't pursue it. <laughs> like, they're, they're, you know, okay. And instead... And I'm here today because I saw a greater opportunity yeah. in terms of the opportunity. And I'm glad ultimately that it went the way it did because I think the impact we can have with this integration of clinical knowledge and our technology platform, I think, you know, yeah. we're going to get to scale on this. And that's the proper place to start is with the knowledge at the core. Because once you get the knowledge right, it's the knowledge, the clinical knowledge, how to treat patients and best practices is that knowledge that's going to drive your outcome fundamentally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the technology. Yeah. And too often in healthcare, we get it backwards. We start with technology. So we're gonna install this really fancy computer system and there's a lot of money and a lot of time. And then afterwards, we might put some knowledge into it. And then people are surprised that they don't necessarily see the impact that they're looking for. And I will say, well, how can you prove quality if you don't put knowledge at the center of the process and Absolutely. so we start with the knowledge and then we spend a lot of time on how we structure it um, and then we have a sophisticated technology platform Techno I'm not saying tech technology is not important it's absolutely critical but we start with the knowledge and then we surround it with this technology platform and when you do it that way then all kinds of good and cool things happen that's fascinating and it and sounds like a very similar approach to what I've read of Atul Gawande's work in the Checklist Manifesto and some of his other books in terms of, you know, start with that knowledge, start with something as simple as a checklist, but then you can then take that in all kinds of different directions, right? Well, absolutely. And his writing um, had, a, had a huge impact on me in terms of mm. when I was thinking and evolving, think research in the early days of right. his books, Checklist yeah. Manifesto. Yeah. He's a uh, uh, completely brilliant, uh, in my opinion, he's a brilliant writer. Uh, his ideas are brilliant and... Uh, uh, definitely, absolutely, and I think he, he makes a he makes many good points. But it is an interesting point that something so simple, mm -hmm. or yeah, such as a checklist, can have such a profound effect. Yeah, and it, there really is a strong synergy there, um, and it, it did influence a lot of our early thinking around how to make this uh, be effective. So he he has some amazing statistics in the checklist manifesto just around uh, application of checklists. And then what that means in terms of mortality rates and successful operations. And I think there's one where it's like 31% operations with a successful outcome more with a simple manifest checklist than not, right? So is that something that you notice 
And is that something that you're able to measure with, with the work that you guys do? So we have all kinds of data from our own projects showing improvements and, and all kinds of different things yeah. from how long you spend in the hospital, how often you get readmitted, the ordering of best practices, yeah. the reduction in the ordering of things that you don't need. So it can really shape okay. the entire care process. And the thing that's underappreciated about these checklists is that there's a direct checklist effect. I'm less likely to forget to order something if it's in front of me. But there are also downstream effects, such that the team will work more efficiently if they work with standardized processes encoded in these checklists. So if you have a standardized approach, and this is well understood outside of medicine, aviation yeah. would be the easy yeah. example, but everybody will work together more efficiently. So in my ICU, if a patient comes to the emergency department, they're working them up. The nurses in the ICU are on the second floor just above the eMERGE, which is just below us. They can start hanging all the bags and drips because they know exactly what they're going to get because the process right. is standardized. And it's that kind of efficiency that also improves the outcome of the patient. And the third thing I think order sets do is they help you solve complex emerging problems more efficiently. And patients are classic complex emerging problems. They've got <laughs> kidney failure and pneumonia and all these different problems all happening at the same time. Yeah. And how do you organize that information so that you solve them in the right sequence and make sure you get the most important ones up front? And how do you put that together? Well, you will actually, traditionally, kind of the approach is you just kind of thought it through and yeah. tried to do it all at once. Um, and and I suppose that means in terms of a medical medical degree or medical training, you have, you have to be trained to think about every possible scenario. Like, yeah. you have to have that in your head before you start, right? Whereas, does this help, help you to have access to better, you know, sort of practices or, or think about things that you might not otherwise think about? It, yes, it helps you organize your thoughts. Yeah. It helps you solve the problem. And then it certainly helps with having access uh, to the most up-to-date, most scientifically accurate treatments right, right there okay. in front of yeah. you. Because the reality is in the middle of a big, busy clinical day, yeah. I can't go out to the internet yeah. and research every problem I see. Yeah. There's just not enough time in the day for me all to look it up. Yeah. So mostly, even though it is online, and in theory I could go look it up, mostly I don't look anything up. I'm, I'm too busy to do that. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. I'm mostly still operating off of memory. So if I'm using an order set to create these treatment plans, well, then the knowledge is right there in front of me. Mm. Um, and I don't, it's part of my workflow. I don't have to break my workflow. And not only is it part of my workflow, it saves me time. And that's a, another critical thing that is often overlooked in all of this, is what's the most valuable resource in healthcare? It's healthcare workers' time. Mm. And if we can save people time, they'll adopt and use the system. And we're creating an immediate good. If all yeah. they did was save time, well, that's worthwhile. And all too often, at least in healthcare, we implement computer systems where the starting proposition is, this is going to slow you down. And, you know, it's going to do these other good things, but it's going to slow you down. Right, yeah. And that puts yeah. you into, and it's interesting in terms of, you know, your, your book and productivity, that puts you into an immediate deficit position. Sure. Because you've just harmed the most important part of your day. Sometimes you're going to climb out of that hole, and maybe some goods are so valuable it's worth taking a productivity hit, and that'll be true sometimes. But a lot of the time it isn't worth it. Hmm. Uh, you just take a hit all too often. One of my formative experiences was, was when I was in a resident in the middle of the 90s. I was working in a big teaching hospital as a resident. 
and they had paper-based orders and they were going to computerize the ordering process. So they brought in an advanced computerized position order entry system at that time. And I used to go home at 6.30 before they brought the system in. They brought the system in, I went home at 8. <laughs> <laughs> and ouch and so that was you know it's just the system was hard to use and yeah. I didn't think I said this doesn't make any sense and how is this making anything better <laughs> and how am I caring for my patients more effectively if I'm hunched over the terminal typing away trying to figure out where everything goes in the system and I, I, I didn't think that was right and there, there, yeah. there has to be a better way than that absolutely so, so the work that you do I mean, it seems to me hugely powerful, hugely impactful on the world. Mm. And it feels to me like there are, there's, it, it's also an area where the more work you do, the more impact you create, right? So immediately to me, there's a, that feels like a challenge, which I think a lot of people have, but is probably more uh, accentuated in your world, which is that like, the more you do, the more lives you save. And it really feel, must feel like the world is burning out there in terms of the more work you can do. There's a real mission around what you're doing, right? Oh, absolutely. And we feel, I mean, the opportunity is enormous. Yeah. The need is enormous yeah. in terms of what we're doing and how we do it. And it, it does really make an impact. And in terms of getting out of bed in the morning, it makes it enormously, enormously exciting Yeah. Um, in, terms of, in terms of what we can accomplish. I absolutely love it. And... I have to pinch myself sometimes to, when I think back where I was. I mean, always had the vision, yeah. but to actually go from just being that guy driving around with a laptop to where we are today yeah. has just been an amazing, amazing, amazing transformation. And just give us like a sense of scale in terms of like number of employees in the office here and like how, how many... How many hospitals you're in and, and that kind of thing? We're in, uh, at this point in time, in terms of we're in about 350 hospitals across Canada. Yeah. And we're working with all levels of the healthcare system in Canada. So we work with the federal government, provincial governments, big groups of hospitals like regions, down to individual hospitals. Um, we're now expanding into long-term care in addition to acute care. Um, we are early stages of uh, expanding into Ireland which we're excited about, and we're expanding into long-term care in the United States. So very exciting and all on terms of the growth. Um, in terms of the organization itself, I think we're just over 110, 100, somewhere north of 100 employees at this point in time. Yeah. Oh, one of the best things about this that I love is just working with smart people. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that I just I can't say enough about the people that we work with. Yeah. They're smart, intelligent, engaged. And what we do all day long is just solve interesting, complicated problems mm. that make things better. And, you know, in terms of things that get me out of the bed in the morning, it, that, if I had to put something that would bubble to the top of the yeah. list, I think that would be, certainly would be one of them for sure. So let's talk about the work part of work-life balance then and just the theme of work-life balance. So in terms of having a whole bunch of very smart people to solve interesting and complex problems with all day, is the problem the opposite view? It's not about needing to have a motivation to get out of bed. It's more of a motivation to get back into bed at the end of the day. So, like, how do you, how, like, how do you switch off? How do you uh, try and regulate that boundary between work and having a life outside of work? Uh, it's a good question. I think if you love what you do and you're engaged in what you do, I think it makes that question much, much easier. Mm. Um, because it, you just you like what you do so much that you never have the sense, oh my goodness, I gotta get out of bed this morning and do it, so that's fabulous. Is it a challenge uh, keeping all those things in sync? 
I mean, my initial reaction before we were talking here was, I mean, what do you mean balance? It's work like <laughs> imbalance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so much to do and it's so engaging that you're doing it a lot. But on the other hand, it doesn't feel unbalanced and I certainly don't feel oppressed by it. I feel quite the opposite. I feel engaged and invigorated by it. And I think you have to be mindful, and I am mindful, about you know time for family yeah. Um, yeah, and relationships, and putting that time, putting that time in for sure. Yeah. I love that as well too. And, but it's a wonderful problem to have. Like, I love this. I yeah. love my family, <laughs> yeah. and uh, just try to you know you're just trying to keep it all yeah. together. I'd far, far rather that problem than the problem of not being motivated to get out of bed in the morning, right? Like it. <laughs> It's, I, I, you know, I, I feel very lucky to have that same sort of sense of wanting to get out and do stuff and being motivated. Yeah, you know, and I think everybody will know people who are doing jobs. I got some friends, for example, who work at some law firms, and they don't particularly like what they do, which is unfortunate. And then their work becomes a burden. Yeah. And even if it's relatively small hours in the day, they're still not very happy about it. So I think it's really about... I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but I think it's true. It's really finding what for you is the right thing to do that you like, that you're engaged in, that counts yeah. for so much. And that's why I'm very grateful to have wound up in a position that has worked out that we are where we are today in terms of what we're doing here at Think Research. Um, I'd love to know about what keeps you awake at night or what your big challenges are. What are the things that you worry about? Um, I think as an entrepreneur... People often ask me what's hard about this, and my answer is everything. Um, <laughs> and what do you worry about? I mean, and once again, the answer to that actually goes back to everything. Um, it's all hard. It all has to be done well. Yeah. Like you can't. You know, we're going to coast on technology. We'll get the content right, but our tech will be so so. Oh, it's not good yeah. enough. And you go to human resources or legal or you name an area. It all has to be done well. And each one of those areas has its own challenges. And so it's kind of the breadth of everything. Nothing keeps me up at the moment in the sense that I don't think we've got any burning issues. In a sense, our problems, as, as we like to say, they're all good problems. Yeah. They're, they're problems of growing and being successful and managing that success. So you've, you've got to balance two completely contradictory thoughts. The other thing I would say as an entrepreneur... On the one hand, you have to be a, a ridiculous, wild-eyed optimist mm. to think that you're going to found a successful business where so many other people you know, fail and recognize how competitive it is and all the different challenges that you face. And so you require optimism there. Yeah. At the same time, as you're operating your business and meeting all these challenges, you need to be pessimistic because you've got to address all the issues, all you've got to... It, like, can go wrong often does and you better be out in front of those issues because you know yeah. you will have an issue so you need to do both of those in the right balance yeah i often feel like the other balance around entrepreneurship as well and and also around productivity yeah. and it, it this sounds like something that fits into your story is the balance between being really hard working and ambitious and wanting to achieve loads and also being really lazy and your thing about like I don't want to have to keep writing down the same stuff over and again. There's a there's a laziness in there, and also there's a ambition to then solve that with an incredible solution, right? Yes, yeah, so that's a deep irony, actually. Yeah, yeah it's totally. I, if I had to write another Tylenol order out, Tylenol one to be, I was going to like you know, you know, I can't, I can't stand waking up. So yeah, it was yeah. ironated or inefficiency drives me bananas. <laughs> it's not working hard so much, but inefficiency just irritates me to no end. Badly designed software 
for me is emotionally disturbing experience. <laughs> it just uh, it gets me worked up because uh, it's so needless. Um, I've met yeah. a kindred spirit here, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I I find that sometimes that just being just crazily annoyed about small inefficiencies that sort of translates into every area of my life, right? So I'll see like things in the way my own kitchen is set up at home or things like that and just kind of want to change it. Like, are you the same? Do you have that sort of sort of drive to remove inefficiency everywhere? Uh, maybe it's interesting. I compartmentalize that. Right. So there's, okay. I, I tend to, I'm a little bipolar. So there's some areas in my life where I'm inefficient and I don't care and I spend <laughs> no effort on it. Right. Because um, I believe attention is, uh, one of the things about efficiency, I think your attention is like a muscle. Yeah. Like, so cognitive focus is not an endless resource. And so you want to be mindful of that to apply it in the right way. So I try to focus on the most important areas of my life. And then there's other areas of my life where I go, who cares if I'm good at that or not? It doesn't matter so much. So we'll let some things slide. Yeah. So my next question is going to be, what are those things? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, boy. Um, I think it's a good question. I think uh, some of the running of everyday life in terms of household stuff. Yeah. I don't focus on that quite as much. I would rather spend time with my kids rather than focusing on tidy and clean and that yeah. kind of thing around the house. I will scale that back a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's trade-offs in, every, in everything, but I will de-emphasize some of that stuff. Any others? It's not, this is not helpful advice, but I think you prioritize everything you do all the time. And I think it's important that some things aren't worth doing or they're mm. not worth doing very well. And yeah. that happens at work on an ongoing dynamic basis. Yeah. And then there's some things that are really important. You better nail the really important things. So I think just being aware that focus is important. I take a couple hours at the start of my week just to plan the week. Like what's on for this week, what, do, what I have to do, what I yeah. don't have to do. And I find actually being mindful about it, planning it up front in the week, actually helps set the week. And then it also helps set whether I've had a successful week yeah. or not. Because it's very easy to go through your weeks as a blur, right? You Completely. just show up in the yeah. morning, start answering emails, then go to your meetings, and then do this or that. And you can churn through a whole week like that and then wake up at the end of the week. And you've done a lot, but it's hard to put it into focus of what you've actually achieved. So I've just given you my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. I think you're going to be nodding a lot as, okay. you, as you read that. <laughs> um, so let's talk more about productivity. So what do you? What are your productivity tips or what are, what are the main things in terms of your own approach to productivity that you find really work for you? My favorite productivity tip, which is incredibly tactical, I think it's been auto-expand in Word. I'm amazed at the number of people who do not appreciate what you can do with auto-expand in Word mm. or auto-correct in Word. Yeah. Right, so you can type your own auto correct. So I mean, if I type W space, it goes to with. Yeah. If I type ABX and hit the space, it expands the antibiotics. And you can build your own library of auto expands. It doubles your typing speed because your keystrokes by both fifty and all. Yeah, right. And it saves huge time. Mm. I love it to pieces. <laughs> okay, there's my tactical tip for the cool. day. So, and I'm amazed at the number of people I bump into who are not aware of it or who are not using that feature. Yeah. So there's my shout out for that. Um, I guess my other recommendation is, and the rest of the stuff I think is more generic, like I kind of use, I think, the standard suite of business tools that people use, just get to know them well. Yeah. Like it is worth, because you're going to spend all your work day in the calendar, in the email inbox and all that stuff or whatever other programs you're using, just get to know, get to know the little extra stuff. 
because yeah, that pays off. And I feel like with particularly a lot of the Microsoft programs, there's some amazing little features in there that they hide. Almost they almost they hide them away from the first things that you see to try and keep everyone's lives simple if you're picking it up for the first time, presumably. But it's finding some of those little features that really helps, right? Absolutely agree, and that's why I gave the shout out to AutoCorrect. Because I'm just surprised how many people don't. And I'm sure there's things that I'm not aware of, and it can really help you out. And that's one of the things that sort of underpins our software development platform. Can we start to build those features in it? Can we actually make medical workflow more efficient? Because I'm amazed at how much time is wasted. Um, both by clinicians looking for information in the record and then rebuilding the same stuff over and over again, and can we make that process more efficient? I think there is we're a spectacular opportunity there yeah. to do that. So, and then I, I think that some of these more general productivity tips, I think, will eventually be mapped more into the medical space as well too. <laughs> So this is Chris O'Connor, and I'm a big fan of what he was just talking about just before the break there around autocorrect and that wider idea of just doing the simple things really well. I think it's very easy and tempting when it comes to productivity to be so focused on the newest gadgets, the coolest tools, the new apps, like doing it like everybody else does it. Like there's this kind of slight sort of fashion uh sort of fashion victim kind of um, mentality often in productivity and one thing that i think about a lot is just how to do the really simple things really well so for example using autocorrect one example of that for me is if i type kr and the spacebar that types out the phrase kind regards comma and if you think about how many times i send an email in a week and basically on every email i write kind regards right so if you think about that multiplied over a year or a few years like that's a massive saving of time just on something so so small and so so simple so if you don't use autocorrect we'll put a couple of links into the show notes here so if you've never used autocorrect before then just go to www.getbeyondbusy.com and in the show notes there we'll put a couple of links to blog posts so you can actually just go and check that out i promise you it's so so simple to set up like it will take you less than five minutes and uh, first of all, it will save you loads of time. Secondly, it just makes doing the smallest, simplest little thing, like sending an email, it just makes it fun again. Because it's like, oh, cool, I've got this little robot that can do some of the work for me. So if you've never used that, then um, uh, that would be a really cool thing to do over the next couple of weeks. And just here's my challenge, right? So look around the screen on Microsoft Word, on Gmail, on Outlook, the, the main things where you spend lots of time, do lots of typing, all that kind of thing. And look around for the buttons that you don't know what they are. Like, I remember that day I first discovered Format Painter and it was like, wow, like, where have you been all my life? Right? And I think there are so many little things like that that are just, they're just either hidden away or we never really think about them. And it's like you don't know what you don't know. So if there are some things on your screen and you don't know what they are, just press those buttons, just find out, just find out what they are. And once you know, um, then educate yourself and just do one thing over the next week or so to just get just get better at one thing within one of those programs. And I'd love you, once you've done that, to drop me an email and tell me what you did. So that's my little challenge for you just over the next couple of weeks. So just drop me an email. It's graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. And finally, before I get back into the interview, so I still feel like so new at this podcasting thing. I did some really interesting interviews over 
uh, the last couple of weeks. Well, I say I did. I interviewed interesting people. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You will tell me whether you think they are interesting interviews or not. But I'm really just really buzzed by uh, the opportunity that this podcast affords me to just go and approach fascinating people and just have really interesting conversations and bring those to you. But I'd love to know if there if there's someone that you think would be the perfect guest for Beyond Busy, someone who you'd love to be hearing from on these kind of topics. Uh, someone who you think has a really interesting take on productivity, on work-life balance, on happiness, on success. Uh, so drop me a line, graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. Tell me who I should interview. And finally, tell me who. Tell me if there are particular questions. So perhaps there's like a question you would like me to answer in this little segment. So perhaps something you're struggling with when it comes to your own productivity, uh, something you'd really like, like me to explore a bit more as a topic. So just drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And Anything that you can offer me really that um, helps me on this journey, because I, I kind of feel like I'm still such a novice here. And uh, just, you know, any bit of feedback is always just so, so helpful to help me make these podcasts better for you. So drop me a line. So back into the interview. And Chris, as I said at the beginning, he is a practicing clinical physician. So 18 weeks a year, he is off being a doctor. And then the rest of the time, he's back, back at his desk running basically a tech firm, right? So Two very, two very, very different roles. So um, I was asking Chris here about the contrast between those and the, the flitting from one hat to another. So you have um, a good sense of structure when you're here in the office. Yes. And you start your week with that thinking and planning and, you know, that gives you a nice benchmark of what a successful week looks like and yes. gives you some structure. And then you you up sticks from here and you go back into medical practice. Yes. What does that do to your mind? I mean, do you feel like there's so much more that should be happening to be able to measure productivity and success there? And like, does it does it frustrate you? Like, I'm just interested in the transition between those two things. So the, one of the nice things about doing the two things is they're totally different. So in a way, they don't... If I'm tired at the end of an ICU week, I can come here to think research yeah. and not be tired because the work is so totally radically right, different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that helps. When I am doing the medical practice, I mean, I focus on everything, obviously, but what really animates me is working on efficiency and process. Mm. And we're coming out, uh, for example, with a new uh, product around physician documentation or clinical documentation, what we're calling progress notes. So structuring those in an intelligent way um, and taking a unique approach to that because I document all day long. Can we do that more efficiently? Right. Um, yeah. And so we're working on that. And so I spend my time at the hospital thinking about those kinds of issues. And they're yeah. all over the place, which is there's lots to do. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I noticed is there's no pens in here. No. Is that, is that a thing? No, I don't. <laughs> I... I have terrible handwriting. It's slow. <laughs> and it says on pieces of paper, which... Um, it's a problem. So I just yeah. type. I don't. I don't write on. I don't write. So there's like write. a couple of uh, just painting a picture of your office. Three screens. Love that. that I, I have two screens, but you're you know you're ahead of me there. Um, a couple of business cards. A tiny pad with a couple of things written on, but just nothing else. Like there's no there's no, not big piles of paper. There's no pens. It's it's very kind of simple. Everything, everything's digital, right? Everything's digital. Very spare. I think that's a huge boon to productivity yeah. myself. Yeah. Uh, double screen setups, I think, well recognized productivity boost there. Triple screen, it's a nice luxury if, you've got <laughs> yeah. the, if, you, if you can do it and get the chip. So I do like the triple screen. Uh, it's just fast because uh, it reduces your cognitive load. Because you can email open in one screen, you can have your document in another screen. 
That's my phone. Um, in another another screen, and uh, you know, yet another thing. On, it's just very efficient that way. Yeah. So tell me about when you get out of work. Um, how do you how do you switch off and do something different from being here? So uh, uh, my partner. Uh, Susan Wright and I, I will not take credit for this idea this was her idea um, to turn off so yeah. I actually go to airplane mode on my phone um, and mostly unplug cool uh, and it's a huge huge win yeah so it's good how long have you been doing that? Uh, about a year sometimes it's been a little more aspirational than in practice <laughs> uh, it's harder to do sometimes but it's actually been great yeah, um, and it puts you into the moment, and I think turning off like that—it's not for everybody in every context. So I certainly recognize that. But if you can turn it off, I think that's—I think that's fabulous. The amount of people who I uh, speak to about that issue, and they say, "But I use my phone as my alarm clock," and I say, "Do you know how cheap alarm clocks are? <laughs> like, just buy an alarm clock, and then you can put your phone somewhere else." Right? And your phone has airplane mode. Yeah. So go to airplane mode. That's yeah. what I do. So I use my phone as my alarm clock. I turn it, and this speaks to just so turn it to airplane mode. Leave it beside your thing. Yeah, but and, you can always turn it back off airplane mode. That's the. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always turn it off. You can run downstairs and get your phone. Will, so, yeah. Willpower is overrated. I think you're going to make it hard. It's funny how things evolve because I remember when BlackBerry first came out yeah. um, and getting my first BlackBerry and getting my first wireless emails and just being addicted to it and yeah. loving it and saying, yeah. you know, if you'd suggested me you'd want to unplug them, I said, are you crazy? I love being plugged in. I love getting emails all the time. This is fabulous. Um, and I, I loved it. And I gave BlackBerry to everybody and I was totally jazzed about it. Yeah. And it's interesting how things evolve and change over time. And what I loved, the word back then was presence, that you were just present all the time. You were connected into people. Yeah. And it was super cool. Um, and it was kind of like TV in the 50s, I suspect. It was this newfangled thing. And you know, people, were just <laughs> okay. through, people were really excited about it. But now that we've been around for 15 years, you start to see some of the downsides of this. Yeah. And it's not as new anymore. And the little endorphin squirt you get when you get a new email on your device mm. uh, is not there anymore. And then I think you can take a more balanced approach and do something do something novel and unplug yeah. for a bit. And I think the idea of being plugged in all the time, I would I mean I suggest I think it's huge value in taking uh, taking a break. Like it's good to be plugged in. I obviously have my phone with me now, but you know you to create that sense of space um, I think is very helpful. And I think space is a very good word in there. I remember seeing, talking a lot about BlackBerry, right? like, maybe it's just because I'm in Canada and we were talking about it historically, but I remember seeing a BlackBerry advert a few years ago and it was of two people uh, halfway up climbing a mountain. Do you remember this one? It was like, and it was like, um, live anywhere, work anywhere. And it's like some guy halfway up a mountain checking his phone and whatever. And I was just thinking, A, there isn't going to be signal up there in that mountain, <laughs> right, firstly. And the, but then secondly, I don't see someone with a huge amount of freedom in that moment. I see somebody who is being nagged on their... It's, like, it's not like they've chosen to, to send an email. It's like they're having to reply to somebody nagging them, probably, is the way I look at that. So I look at that advert as being the, the worst advert for having email on your phone that you could possibly have. Ah. Which wasn't the intention, and maybe that's why BlackBerry kind of, you know, uh, tailed off as a company <laughs> after that. But like, I just think I think space is a really interesting um, 
thing to uh, aspire towards in terms of that disconnection. That's a big part of it. Yeah, I think so. And having the time, like I think one of the things people potentially like now is that this continuous stream, constantly fragmented thought processes. So how are you going to really think anything at a deep level? Mm. Like I think of some of the things that underpin the innovations of think research and how they came to be. And they came about long periods of quiet thought off the grid, so to speak, Absolutely. and thinking about yeah. it in a deep way. And if you're just on email and Facebook the entire time, I don't think you're going to have those kinds of thoughts. Yeah. So it's a little bit about one of the things I say, if you actually want to do something different, then you're going to have, you've got to zig while everybody else is egg. You just, if you want, you can be part of the middle, but you actually have to go off to the side of it sometimes mm. if you want to think something new. I, uh, yeah, there's going to be more nodding when you read my book. Okay. For sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, for sure. Um, and I think for me, you know, having sort of spent long periods off Facebook and long periods looking at that disconnection, I mean, something I talk about in workshops a lot is, yeah. I say to people, where do you have your best ideas? And what you've just said is, you know, totally what I say is, is most people have their best ideas in the shower, walking the dog, you know, cycling along. You know, I, I don't think you have your best ideas answering a, another email or sat at your desk reading something else, right? Like you need that space and you need that disconnection to, to make creativity happen. No, absolutely. And the other point I would say, remember, list your top 10 best moments in your life or top 100 best moments. And there, none of them involve replying to email or adding another post to Facebook, right? I mean, yeah. so I'm not a Luddite in saying these things don't have value. They do have value, but they're not yeah. the part of your life that makes your life worth living. And they're not where your creativity comes from, for sure. So when it comes to lifestyle, productivity, and just living a good life, what are you still working on? Everything. <laughs> and that comes across a big clip, but I mean, seriously, everything, right? Like yeah. you're working on everything all the time mm. and you have to get better at everything all the time. And that's what makes it interesting and worthwhile. Yeah. Like for me, the idea that you would plateau and then you just kind of coast until some kind of end point is just not appealing at all. Yeah. And if you, I think the second you do that is the second you're over. Um, and is it so you're working on everything, but is there something in particular that you're working on more? Well, I mean, in terms of think research, we're always one of the core things here that we're in a good position to do because of our size. We can be agile and we can innovate and we mm. can come up with new products. Yeah. We're, in, we're in a nice space because we're big enough that we've got some technical muscle, and yet we're small enough that we can still pivot and we can still move and, and yeah. do some kind of cool outsider stuff. So I spend a lot of time on that and thinking about how is our products going to grow and evolve over time. And I love thinking about that. So I spent a lot of time on that. And I've worked with some organizations before who, I remember one organization, they went from, a communications company went from 20 to about 60 to about 120 people. And the, sort of, the, the internal joke was in management meetings, they would always say, we're just at that size now where we can no longer be agile. We're just at that size now where we're too big and we need different kinds of communication. And it's like every size was the wrong size in that sense. But 100 people, how do you, how do you maintain agility with that? I mean, this is not like a three-person or one person with a laptop where you can just decide and do something. Like what's, what's critical to maintaining that agility? Oh, it's interesting. I would just say, referencing your previous conversation about every size being the wrong size, I would actually argue back every size is the right size. Because yeah. every size, and it's just like growing up as a person, whatever, has, has its strengths and has yeah. its goodness. 
Like, yeah, it was, it was a tough being a guy just with a laptop going around. But at the same time, there was a lot of fantastic things about that too. Mm. And same with the 10 person phase and the 50. And they've each got very cool things to them. And so where we are now, it is a challenge. So for the first time, sort of clear 100 people, and this is well described, now we've got departments that have clearly defined things they do. And now these departments have to coordinate with each other. So we now have to be mindful about building that. Yeah. Um, I think that's gone very well for us, actually. We're still a very tight organization. We're very fortunate that our senior man management has been here a long time. We know each other very well. We work together very effectively, so we've got those close personal relationships. And I think, collectively, we, we a bit corny, but we're pretty passionate and pretty excited yeah. about what we're yeah. doing. And that really helps. And you know, I can walk anywhere on the floor and talk to anybody I want. And the same applies to pretty much everybody else here. Um, and and so, you're, not, you're not too hierarchical in that sense? No, very flat. And I think, you know, creative economy, knowledge workers, you know, the key thing if you want people to excel and thrive is to provide them with that environment. Yeah. The old command control where you tell people what to do just is not going to work in Keep this Give people space. the autonomy, trust them, let them get on with it. And precisely. Yeah. Get smart people, yeah. give them the autonomy, meaning, and challenge of their work, and yeah. the rest takes care of itself. And it's really that simple. And then you end up, we're also fortunate, we're in a bit of a virtuous cycle, and then we've got a, a great core of people, and then great people know other great people and people like to work here, so they come, and then that just, you know, yeah. that, that's, a, that's, that's very good at this point in time. Will we run into a different set of challenges when we get to 200 people or 400 people? And to that, of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, it will, it will change. And yeah. we'll have to solve those problems too. And that's why I don't ever think in terms of coasting. Like you never hit a point in which you're just, you know, just showing up and doing the same thing. You're always going to be doing something new. Yeah. Which for the right person and for me, that's what that's what I love. Like when I was early in my ICU career, when I was just taking care of patients, I said to myself, I mean, it's meaningful work to take care of patients and I love and I really like being an ICU physician and I love showing up my job. But if that's all I was going to do, and if I was going to be doing the same thing, you know, as day one, mm -hmm. as I was going to do 30 years later, that I was going to find problematic. So yeah. I, <clears throat> I wanted to do it better, and I wanted to do it, make a meaningful change. So for me, I, I needed that process. So growth is important to you in that respect. Variety is important to you in that yes, respect. Yes, critical. Yeah, yeah. And, and so tell me, in that sort of pursuit of growth and pursuit of variety, do you feel like you can ever have enough of it? Or is it important to even think about where the end lies in that sense? As I said, I don't see an end. I mean, certainly in terms of think research, the opportunities here is huge. And that's going to keep us busy for a very long time. Right, I yeah, don't yeah. see that ending anytime soon. But even if I was to take think off of the table, you know, I would, I don't know what it would be, but there would be something uh, that I would get engaged in and my ICU practice could get better and I don't know where it would be, but I would have to get engaged in something. I mean, because what's the, what's the alternative? Well, that's a good question. Do you ever have any... Uh, I sometimes sit and date... I meet people in very, very different jobs to mine and sometimes have that little daydream after I've met them on the... You know, as I'm traveling on the train or whatever and just thinking... I wonder what it'd be like to do their job for a while. Do you have anything like that where you just think, I'd love to, in a parallel universe, here's the, here's the job or career I, I would do. 
I am I admire enormously what other people do. Mm -hmm. Like it's pretty cool what they do. Yeah. And you know, I think of my neighborhood where I live and all the interesting people. The people next door are professional musicians. She's the first violin uh, yeah. for the symphony for the Canadian Opera Company. Like cool and interesting. Yeah. And her yeah. life is so different yeah. in terms of what she does. And that's really cool. Mm. I also know deeply given my music talent, I just could never do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to happen. But, but with it's cool. you get to, to suspend disbelief. Right? Yes. So you can be anything. You know, and the guy around the corner for me, he's a director of photography for commercials so he's flying all over the world and he's filming commercials all over the place mm. also pretty cool he films documentaries for nature channels as well too so talking yeah. to him is interesting that's also neat and you meet all these neat people that do different things and I, I think it's pretty cool and I admire the skill and guts of people who do a lot of these things that are not that are not easy to do I used to at one point in my life kind of how would I put this? Not be comfortable in sort of who I was. I kind of wished I was those other people yeah. in a sense. But I think after a while you recognize there's the things that you're good at and not the stuff that you're grateful for. And then yeah. there's other things that are cool and that's great, but that's not necessarily who yeah. you are, if, if that makes sense. So maybe um, that brings me on to asking you how, how you define happiness and success for yourself. So happiness, I think, is not a direct goal. Some people think you don't do something to make you happy, yeah. that you should pursue something that has intrinsic merit, that's outside of yourself, that's complicated and challenging. And in the process of doing something like that, that, that will make you happy. Yeah. And that can be both in work, but it can be personally pursuing marriage, pursuing kids. I mean, kids are an interesting example in the sense that love kids, so important to your life. But a lot of the day-to-day -day of kids is you know, a little sketch, you know? They don't want to put their coats on and, you know, they're having a bad day. And yet it animates your life. And you know that it's worth doing because of this incredible good that comes from it. Do you know Louis C.K., the comedian? You know, and he has that whole thing about kids. They're so boring. <laughs> and it's like no one ever says that, but there is a, there's a huge chunk of just laborious boredom with kids as well as the beautiful moments. Exactly. <laughs> so and I think that to me is how I've thought about... Um, so I read a bit when I was in medical school I was had an interest in, yeah. in this kind of topic and philosophy in a little bit and that was the framework for me that I found to be that I found to be helpful when thinking about it and tell me about that matrix thing you were just talking about just before we started recording a sort of matrix oh. of how, how you judged that oh sort of in terms of the autonomy yeah um, so I think the three key things um, personally and professionally and I think I think research as well too when you think about this is that you want meaning in your work you want it to be complicated or challenging and you want to have autonomy autonomy or some self-agency in it right so you want some mastery of your own domain and if you can give people those three elements to what they're doing they're going to be happy and that matrix can apply to everybody in the organization, yeah. regardless of where they are. It can apply to the person who, you know, it can apply to reception, it can apply to people everywhere in the organization. And I think if you get that right, then you have engaged people. And it'll be different for everybody, right? Nobody's going to answer that yeah. question the same. But if you can get those three things, it's so So meaning, autonomy, and some level of complexity or challenge. Yes. I'm just trying to think, is there any job in the world where that would not be possible? I mean, you can have bad bosses that make that impossible, but that you, I mean, you could find ways of getting those three things into any single person on the planet's job description right? or just job environment. I would think you, you think? could. 
it's going to be easier with some jobs than others. Yeah, yeah. So we're lucky at a place like Think, like we're innately working on something that's kind of cool. Yeah. And we've got a lot of interesting jobs in terms of the, the com- computer stuff we're building is complicated and the, our secure cloud is complicated. We've got all these interesting challenges. So it's pretty, it's easier here, I would say, to yeah. give people those. But I think you could give it to anybody in any other context. Mm. And I think, uh, I think it's its own intrinsic good. One of my big motivators for founding think was that I wanted it to be a good organization. Yeah. Like I wanted it to be a good place. We've got too many companies and organizations where people show up and it's fundamentally not good and people mm. feel disempowered and unlistened to and they just show up and put the hours in. And I didn't think the world needed another one of those places. <laughs> um, having experienced some myself, uh, you know, hospitals, for example, can be pretty big bureaucratic places yeah. sometimes. And I thought I wanted to create a fundamentally different organization and such that if one of our objectives is to create this collaborative network that links healthcare across hospitals, organizations, phases of care, and hopefully across yeah. countries, across the world, yeah. you know, that we're going to want to do have that same process internally. Yeah. And in our case, we really do need to be the change that we want to be. We, we couldn't be creating this collaborative ecosystem, as I like to call it, and then have internally this rigid top-down structure. And yeah, it just, would, just yeah. would not work. Yeah. So we have to internalize. So they're bidirectional. It comes organically from our vision of what we want to achieve, uh, informs who we are, and who we are informs the vision. They're both they're integrally connected with each other. And do you have any little sort of devices to, to help design the experience of that culture for your people? I mean, I noticed on the front desk there, I was really surprised to see like those little uh, jars with um, Jello sweets in and mm-hmm. uh, M&M's kind of stuff. And, and that's sort of thinking, this is, these, these dudes are medical people. Why, why are you eating sugar? And <laughs> stuff? Are there things that you do that are deliberately done to sort of design, to, to in, entrench that kind of thinking in the organization and the culture? Uh, we do a myriad of things around that. Uh, first, our office space. I mean, I think you yep. can see that is open concept, brick and beams, nice building downtown. Um, I think we live the ethos. We just had our quarterly. We have a, a party at the end of the quarter. If we achieve it, we just had our first really big party we, last we week, exactly the same. which yeah. was really a huge amount of fun. And uh, uh, that was great. And so cool. we're mindful of it in all kinds of different ways. And then I also think... At the end, the core thing is you got to kind of live it and believe it. Yeah. Right? You know, um, so if I go out on the floor or somebody else, you know, goes on the floor and you're just going through the motions, you're pretending, people will see through that. Yeah, and the key yeah. thing that people want these days, and I'm, I'm sure you've encountered this, authentic, this authenticity of what you're about is so fundamental. Because if you're really authentically engaged what you do, that's cool. And yeah. if you're not authentically engaged... You know, it just is not going to be the same. So I think that's key. And you you can, and the nice thing is that it's ultimately, I feel very, it's bi-directional. I get it mm. from them at least as much as they get it from me, if not more. Yeah. Like my goal, I used to joke, my goal back before I created Think was that you would want to be the least smart person in the room of the organization you built because the goal is to get super smart people to work with and that's what makes it exciting. And I think that ethos still permeates it and you listen to their good ideas. Um, And that... It's it's both the good ideas but then fundamentally it's the conversation 
And I think this is easier said than, I mean, I, get, we, I think we get a bit of credit for actually doing this. I certainly know I've been in organizations where the idea you're going to pick is what the chair of the committee wants to do, because that's what he wants to do. And it doesn't matter whether it's a good, bad, terrible idea. You're just going with that idea. I've certainly lived through some of those experiences. And then that is profoundly demoralizing and yeah. alienating. And, yeah. you know, um, and, and we couldn't, where we are in the ecosystem now, you know, we're trying to do this incredible, audacious thing and building this huge connecting platform and, you know, actually trying to make some meaningful change. And we're only going to do that if we have the smartest, best people working with us, you know, as, a, as truly as a team, getting everybody engaged. We can't yeah. afford to have a group of alienated people off in the corner that are not fully engaged. So it's, it's all one connected cycle, right? We need the best people to do this incredible thing and you get the best people and then you do cool things and that's engaging. And when you get it right, then it just, it creates this positive energy and yeah. then it, you end up on this positive cycle. And I would hate to have to solve the problem if you were in the negative space where it was going the wrong way and how you'd break that. I think that'd yeah. be very hard. But once you've got the positive energy going, you have to be mindful about it, but just keep that reinforcing it. It will naturally expand for the, for the, for the foreseeable future. Cool. Yeah. I think it's a great place to finish. Okay. Thank you. I was, I'm feeling very inspired by, okay. uh, by your stories there. Is there anything just before we finish that you wanted to... Uh, wanted to say or add on the topic that we've not had a chance to discuss uh, no just thank you so much <laughs> I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk and appreciate your thoughtful questions it was a lot of fun cool. thank you very and much. just for people who might be interested to just find out more um, just tell us you know where we can find you on the web and um, just give us just give us some links to some of those things okay for sure so the web page is thinkresearch.com if you google think research at least in canada we're the first hit on google that you encounter and that's the the best way to encounter us and if you want to reach out to me you can send me an email is chris.o'connor at thinkresearch.com and it's uh i think it's pretty straightforward how, how to spell that and uh thank you for taking the time Did you hear my really great bit of interview technique at the end there, which was like, it reached a really natural conclusion. And then I'm like, oh, is there anything else you want to say? Which is, if you've ever been interviewed, that's like the worst question you can ask. Because it's like, it just leaves it so open-ended that as, as an interviewee, you just have no idea what to say. And uh, Chris, of course, had no idea what to say in that scenario either. So um, I'll get better at that, I promise. But thanks again to Chris O'Connor. And I think it was just really... It was fascinating how many of the themes in there are things that are just coming up again and again as I'm doing these interviews. Um, one is the idea of, of like everybody cursing their mobile phone. I think there's a real backlash against the idea of your attention being constantly fragmented. And Chris's line about zigging when everyone else is zagging, I think is, is really true. You know, the, the long periods of quiet thought are often the things that lead us to solving the problems and making this stuff happen that, that really, really matters. And, you know, in Chris's case, it's, it's saving lives, right? But like that doesn't come for free. Like you've got to really firewall the time and attention to do that quality thinking and really make that happen. The other one is presence. I think this thing about being present and in the moment and having presence is something that I think people are thinking about a lot more. And I think, you know, with, again, very good reason, because I think people feel so unpresent so much of the time and feel so distracted that I think quality attention and you know giving someone your presence and 
being really present with someone is becoming more and more the biggest gift that you can give people. And I think there's just something interesting. There's definitely a reason why that's coming up in pretty much every conversation I'm having with people for, for Beyond Busy. Uh, so thanks again to Chris O'Connor. Thanks also to Mark Stedman from Bloomsbury Digital for putting all of this together. And thanks to you for listening. So if you haven't checked out my book, it's called How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And if you haven't checked out um, the website uh, for my company, it's just thinkproductive.com or thinkproductive.co.uk. And you can find out loads more about this project and about Beyond Busy at getbeyondbusy.com. Uh, so there you'll find uh, all the various show notes. You'll find all the links to past episodes. And yeah, you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and all those places. But do check out getbeyondbusy.com uh, just to find out a bit more about this whole project and what we're doing. The next episode will be out in two weeks time. I've got some really great ones coming up. Um, did some really interesting interviews with interesting people um, on my North American tour. So those are saved up and I'm kind of, they're kind of, it's like having money burning a hole in your pocket. Like I'm really excited to bring these next episodes to you over the next few weeks. Um, so the next one is out in two weeks time. Until then, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Beyond Busy. I've been Graham Alcott and I'll see you in two weeks time. 